This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Festival. It's a seal, it's a dog, it's a panther, it's a this, it's a that. We had an illustrator come in and show all these different versions of what people saw. But, you know, a lot of people have difficulty describing what they've seen, especially if it's something they've never seen before that's really taken them by, by surprise. Hey everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And this is episode two, and it's about monsters. Mythical monsters, or I don't know, real ones? Strange creatures have also been sighted in our Salish Sea waters. Move over, Sasquatch. Meet Cadborosaurus. <laughs> I mean, does does the Salish Sea have its own kind of Loch Ness monster? Yep. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, a fascinating thing because we're we're also obsessed with Sasquatch, but we've missed largely a, a kind of whole other ecosystem of strange critters, strange sightings, and they're not just a few of them. I mean, they go back a long way, and they continue. One witness, a Major Langley, a local barrister, was out on his yacht with his wife when they heard a snort and a hiss and saw a large creature with a dome-like back with serrations. Langley had been whaling, and he said it was unlike any whale he'd ever seen. Yeah, so that is the topic of the video in Mossbacks Northwest. You should really go watch it right now if you haven't already. Uh, go to the show notes on this episode or to the show page on crosscut.com. Check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. So this just is, to me, a, a fascinating subject. My grandmother grew up in the Highlands. She was a believer in the Loch Ness Monster. She believed she'd seen it. She was of uh, fishing people in, in the, the Highlands, the Murray Firth. The Loch Ness was in her backyard, essentially. And, uh, of course, she believed in lots of things, like being able to tell your fortune in a teacup. But, uh, so, and, um, and so when the subject of the Loch Ness Monster, and, of course, when I was a kid, I was fascinated by such, th you know, Sasquatch and the Loch Ness Monster, these <clears throat> uh, critters. There were all kinds of theories, of course, about Nessie which is one of the things people call the Loch Ness Monster, about perhaps it was a, a prehistoric cre creature that survived and was living in the lake. Uh, perhaps there are tunnels that, you know, other sea creatures can come from the, from the ocean and swim into the loch and that kind of thing. And so I, and of course, there are alleged photographs of the Loch Ness Monster of, you know, that some of which really stretch credibility, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> When I was young, my father uh, told us uh, that there was a, a creature that lived in Lake Okanagan up in British Columbia called Ogopogo. He didn't see Ogopogo, but he knew about Ogopogo. Uh, we had a lot of relatives in British Columbia, and uh, they talked about it. And it was a big thing in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, so, you know, he would say, well, there's Ogopogo. And uh, there were even stories about Lake Washington, both indigenous people talking about various bodies of water throughout the you know, region having some kind of creature living in them. 
And I remember there was a big earthquake in Seattle in 1965. And I remember after that earthquake, there were people who said they saw some kind of a sea creature or serpent in Lake Washington. And I I was totally fascinated, but it it seemed to peter out. But the thought was maybe a fault had opened up and somehow a, a creature had gotten into Lake Washington. And years later in the 1980s, a giant, a very large, old sturgeon <laughs> died and, and was found on a beach up, on, up near uh, Juanita. And so people did research because sturgeon aren't generally in Lake Washington. And the theory was that these sightings in 1965 and, and subsequent ones were when the sturgeon had come to the surface sunning itself or whatever, people saw this large creature that then dove. And it turned out that there were two sturgeon that were exhibited at the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition in 1909. And afterwards, they dumped them into the lake. Oh. And one of them, at least, lived another 80-plus years uh, in Lake Washington and was the, the sort of basis for people wondering if there wasn't a, a Loch Ness monster in in Lake Washington. Wow. And I think that, you know, while we didn't have anything like Nessie, there's still this element of the sea being unknown. It you know, we don't know everything about what lives in Puget Sound or in the in the uh, on the coast. And certainly there have been large serpent-like creatures portrayed in Salish and North Coast indigenous artworks, and oh, and and the whole you know question is: Are these simply uh, renderings of mythological or legendary creatures, or is there some reality to it? Mm-hmm. So I had heard that there somebody had seen a sea creature called Caddy up in British Columbia. And I was like, what, what is that? I've never heard of that. And I, I hadn't, you know, I'd heard of Ogopogo, but I hadn't heard about Caddy. Well, Caddy is short for Cadborosaurus. And it turns out in the 1930s, some fairly reputable people near Cadboro Bay on Vancouver Island saw a large serpent-like creature and uh, reported it, and this is 1933, and it got into the newspaper, and suddenly people started seeing Caddy everywhere. Articles appeared, and scores of new sightings were recorded. Some believe that there was an entire Caddy family out there frolicking from Puget Sound to Campbell River. Uh, you know, I think, I think there's, uh, you know, a way that when one person sees something, it kind of triggers other people seeing it as well. In the earlier part of uh, the days of settlement and whatnot, people were coming to this region largely from the water, coming down the Strait of Juan de Fuca into Puget Sound or, you know, coming up to Vancouver Island. And so there was a lot of opportunity, I think. And, and one of the things that surprised me was the frontier newspapers have, on a pretty regular basis, these little items about uh, sea monsters or sea serpents being sighted by sailors that are, you know, coming into port here. And, 
the one that I, one I got a big kick out of because of Seattle's uh, hockey team is uh, there. I found a report which wasn't in the episode about a Kraken sighting by a Danish sea captain who was sailing to Seattle and somewhere along the line, it didn't specify where, encountered a Kraken. <laughs> wow. and, uh, Just reported in the newspaper like, he saw a Kraken. Everybody. Yeah, exactly. Now, a lot of people, especially as time went on, uh, you know, reported these with great skepticism. And you could see sometimes sarcastically it would say, well, you know, they had one too many nips on the... You know, the grog, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, since it, and that sailors tell exaggerated stories. Some of them are quite wild. There was one story that was in a, in the 1880s in a Vancouver, Washington newspaper where a sea captain came in and, and you know, told this tale of this almost dragon-like massive sea creature that had wings bigger than the sails on his sailing ship and came up and snorted and and uh you know scared the bejesus out of everybody and um it's very typical of some of these stories that it is serpent like it had a ridges on its back it it had humps it sometimes a long neck it's kind of amazing to me because it's like um it sounds like the way you're describing this is that once you started looking in old newspapers from, I guess, the 19th, 20th centuries, you, you were just seeing sighting after sighting after sighting. Like this was something that was happening all the time and getting written up a lot. I mean, yeah, it was fairly regular and, and uh, articles here, articles there and uh, in, 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 in places that seem disconnected from others, you know, somebody in Somebody in uh, at Willapa Bay, and then somebody in northern BC. Wow, what's so fascinating to me about this is like this um, this little sort of glimmer of hope that it is actually something real, something that that science hasn't yet discovered. Because it's easy to say like, oh well, you you probably just you know saw. A whale. I mean, what else is giant and out there in the water? And, and, you know, sometimes if you only saw one part of the whale, then it would look like this or that. Or like, of course, of course, of course, there's a rational explanation. But then there's just this like little glimmer. So one of the reports, early reports of Cadborosaurus, the man had been whaling before. So he had seen a whale um, and he knew it wasn't a whale. Like he knew what a whale looked like and it wasn't that. And I feel like for me, that was just this moment where I thought, okay, well, that gives me a little bit makes me pause for a moment like if he I mean you right. know if you are to believe him um that he knows what a whale is like what did he see then you know just like even though I go I keep on circling back to of course it was a whale I mean what else would it be but <laughs> yeah well it, it's interesting you bring up the topic of whales because there's kind of a whole secondary topic that I didn't address at all in the in the video, partly because I didn't really get into it until after we had already shot the episode. Hmm. But uh, and it's it, it it is about whales. So on the one hand, there were a lot of people in the 1930s, 1920s, 40s, whatever in that era who uh, they knew what whales looked like. I mean, because we were still actively whaling in the Pacific Northwest. There were mm. whaling stations in Oregon and Washington, and, and there were seasonal whaling vessels that were going up and whaling in Alaska. So there were plenty of people out there who knew their whales, and they knew them particularly if they were commercially 
uh, desirable whales. Not all whales are, you know, desirable economically. Mm. So they didn't really understand them from a deep biological standpoint, but they knew a whale when they saw one. So that's kind of an interesting thing that lends credibility to this guy's account. Um, on the other hand, you know, we think of Northwest symbol is orcas, mm-hmm. killer whales. But people basically, before NAMU was captured in 1965, people didn't know anything about them. They were called blackfish, for one thing. Huh. Uh, blackfish or killer whales. Whalers considered them kind of the enemy because, you know, they would harpoon a, f- a whale and a killer whale would come up like a shark and take a bite out of it. Mm. So they were considered kind of pests, but no one really knew about the distinctive pods and different diets, the cultural aspects of orcas. Um, And they didn't always know what an orca was when they saw it. We'll be right back. Support for the Mossback Podcast comes from the Crosscut Festival, happening online and in Seattle May 4th through the 7th. Join us in celebrating bold ideas for a changing world at our biggest event of the year, featuring fireside conversations, panels, live podcast recordings, workshops, and special events that explore forward thinking in politics, social justice, the environment, history, innovation, and more. Spend your week with the community of the curious at the Crosscut Festival this spring. More information at crosscut.com slash festival. I sort of stumbled onto this whole thing about whales and and creatures that are here that shouldn't be here when... uh, Last fall, uh, somebody sighted a beluga whale swimming in Puget Sound. Right. A rare beluga whale spotted swimming around the Puget Sound. This beluga whale has captivated so many precisely because it is so rare. And so beluga whales, they're white, they're very distinctive. And we were just baffled, like, what is this animal? I've never seen it, anything like this in this bay before. And this whale... Apparently, according to it, it was tracked by people who watch whales and they captured some of its poop and and other things. And they determined that this whale had come from the Beaufort Sea. Noah says Hmm. the beluga likely traveled thousands of miles south around Alaska. In the Arctic, that's 1,500 miles from here. How did this whale get off track? Well, Hannah Weinberger, one of uh, the science and environment reporters for Crosscut, did an article. And in the article, she mentioned this is the first beluga sighting since 1940. Hmm. Well, being history minded, I'm like, what what was that about? You know, (laughs) there was a beluga whale here in 1940. So I began looking into that. And uh, it turned out, yes, there was a bona fide beluga whale sighting in Puget Sound, the beluga swam down to um, Point Defiance, but was, you know, viewed in various different places. And, of course, it was a great novelty. And, a, <clears throat> you know, that's the kind of thing where any layperson who saw such a thing back then 
uh, in the 1940s when people didn't know much about certain kinds of whales, you know, could have mistaken for some kind of other sea creature. Mm -hmm. But also, it's true that this whale was actually here. (laughs) And this new beluga whale was also actually here. There's film of it, photographs, DNA, evidence, (laughs) all Mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I began looking at whales that were where they weren't supposed to be. So, for example, in 1931, this is right before the caddy sighting, a youthful young orca swam up the Columbia River all the way to Portland and apparently couldn't find its way back. And it, it, you know, swam and played off of Portland. They gave it a name. And it's the first orca in America, anyway, that was ever named. They named it Ethelbert. <laughs> And uh, Ethelbert the whale. And they they didn't know what gender it was. They didn't even know what species it was. And they asked whalers, and there was finally some guy, old grizzled guy, came along and said, well, that's a blackfish. Hmm. And there was a big debate because it seemed to be getting weaker, and and it was swimming in a very polluted part of kind of a slough where a lot of Portland sewage was. This orca, Ethelbert, seemed to be weakening. And and they said, well, you know, we're going to have to either get it out of the water and rescue it, or we're going to have to kill it. Mm-hmm. And there was so there's big debate went on with, you know, people from wildlife and old whalers and everything. And so this man and son who were, the man had been a long time in the whaling business, he went out there and shot Ethelbert. Yeah. And then his plan was to take Ethelbert's body and turn it into a sideshow, tour tour it around, you know, the country or wherever. But before he could do that, another group of guys came in and stole Ethelbert's body. Wow. And so then there was a big fight over who owned Ethelbert. And it turned out it was a young, you know, young female orca, probably, you know, separated from its pod. And um, so they decided to pickle the whale. <laughs> and so uh, all parties uh, basically agreed. So they apparently rounded up every ounce of embalming fluid in Portland, all the formaldehyde, and they made a big container and they put this, you know, 12 foot long orca in, into a preservative. And then there was a big le- a further legal battle over whether these guys should be charged with a crime. It wasn't illegal to kill whales then. So mm-hmm. uh, long story short, Ethelbert ended up the property of these uh, man and his son. Wow. And then dropped out of, out of history for, you know, maybe 40 years. Wow. And it turned out there were rumors that someone had buried an orca on a mountain in southwest Washington, up near Washougal. Whoa. <laughs> on a mountain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they, and this is D.B. Had... Cooper country, by the way. <laughs> right. right? This is Sasquatch country. Mm, ah, the plot thickens. There's the, the plot, money. The okay. plot thickens. Well, <laughs> Whales so... and cash. Okay. 
<laughs> so there's a guy who is like a property assessor in Clark County who tries to track this rumor down. And after years of searching, he and his daughter are able to narrow it down to a particular piece of property on a mountain outside of uh, Washougal. And lo and behold, they find the container with the pickled whale in it just has been kind of dumped on this property and has been there since, uh, you know, the 1930s. And it was still in recognizable condition. And then the, the discovery was confirmed by other reporters from the, you know, Oregonian and the Columbian and other papers, you know, were able to come up there and, and see that, yes, indeed, there was a pickled orca on top of, on top of this uh, mountain. And, and, uh, and then some folks came along and I guess some timber people came along and had uh, dug a ditch or dug a, you know, got a bulldozer, dug a big ditch and buried Ethelbert. Wow. Gave, gave her the burial she, she deserved. I mean, I guess uh, the man and his son or whoever had control of of Ethelbert's body just thought, I guess we'll just uh, leave her here and um, run away. Well, apparently it turns out that they they at one time owned the property. Okay. And and that was where they they are said to have taken Ethelbert on a very short tour and that didn't work out. So they had to put put her someplace. They dumped her on this property, and then they sold the property, but they paid some kind of amount to the new owners for leaving Ethelbert there. So that that was part of the that financial transaction showed up in the deed, I think, in some of the paperwork, and that was what the what the um, a clue that the property assessor was able to track as being suspicious because it was a very strange condition of the sale. <laughs> yeah. You got to be okay with a giant pickled whale. Okay. Now, the, the yeah. other little last piece of this is that in the time between when Ethelbert was reported to be in this place and before its burial, word about Ethelbert, you know, had gotten out apparently in the local community. There was some kind of a rumor about it. And high school kids would go up there, you know, like at night, they go up to see the dead whale. And there's some thought or some indication that some of the students may have taken some of Ethelbert's teeth. And I've talked to, in British Columbia, you know, people who do research on on uh, orcas. That turns out to be very interesting because they can extract DNA from an orca tooth, and if they could get one of those Ethelbert teeth, might be able to tell probably not which pod Ethelbert was part of, but they could probably tell, you know, was this part of the southern resident orcas that we're so concerned about now, or is it an ocean-going orca or a, a transient? They could probably tell about something about its diet, which, of course, would indicate where where it was. But I'm just fascinated by this thing where 
you know, we're talking about sea monsters, but they're creatures that we know that when we see them in a different context have really um, confused people, have have been a, been a mystery, have been an object of capture or exploitation. You know, their habits, their identity, all of that was really, really unknown until starting in the mid-1960s. Before that, they were effectively sea monsters. They were considered, you know, scary predators. They were, they were thought of more like sharks. They, uh, people didn't really know what they would eat or if they would eat people. There was a lot of fear about orcas. And, I, yeah, I just, I'm fascinated by that, the, the fact that we have experience with, quote, unquote, sea monsters, um, yet we found out more about them. Right, exactly. So is a sea monster just an undiscovered, uh, undiscovered by science or uncategorized uh, in the way that we would now? I mean, so, for example, the, the, the people who were whalers back in the, the 19th century, for example, would those people have not thought of an orca as a whale? Like that was something they didn't know so well because they weren't trying to catch them, right? So I guess. Yeah, I think I think many of them thought of them just as these pests, and like I say, maybe more like sharks than than whales. A lot of people wanted to kill killer whales because they were competing with fishermen for salmon. Mm. But then there were some experiences where they saw that. I think there was a, a, one example from maybe the 1940s where somebody had cut open a killer whale and saw that the killer whale was not eating salmon. It was eating seals. And there were many seals in its belly. You began to see people saying things like, well, I guess they're our friends. They're eating, they're, they're eating the critters that are eating the salmon. There was no realization that maybe these killer whales had different diets. Now we know that the transient killer whales, so-called Biggs killer whales, feed on sea mammals, whereas the southern population feed on salmon. But you could see people are like, friend or menace? What These things, what are they? And of course, you know, that that's certainly been resolved in terms of popular culture. They're free, free willy, Namu. Exactly. I mean, now, I mean, I feel like the orca now, and if you're living in the Seattle area, it's like that. I mean, absolutely. It's a friend. And it's it's like such a friend that it's sort of a, a symbol of, of our environmental destruction. We're trying to save it. You know, I think of the orca as like, is like the polar bear of uh, Puget Sound, you know? Yeah, that's a good analogy. It's just that creature that sort of symbolizes our success or failure environmentally, spiritually, our humanity. But, you know, all of that is only within the last really 50 years or so, 60 years. It's really since the capture of Namu popularized the idea that killer whales weren't monsters. The other thing is that the the sea is is full of amazing stuff, even if you don't believe in sea serpents or sea monsters or the kraken or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think all of us at some time have seen something remarkable. I mean, if I if I were living in the 19th century and had never seen a whale and I, I watched a humpback breach, in, which I've seen in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, you know, 
frolicking humpbacks. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I could describe that in a way that would sound rational. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, and yeah, right. um, yeah. I one time, one of my, my best sort of sightings of something weird in Puget Sound was uh, on an evening coming back on a cruise boat. And I was standing in the bow. It was a summer night. Uh, it was dark. But there were a bunch of us, you know, standing up there. And there were porpoises that were swimming in the bow wave. They were going up and down, mm. except they were bioluminescent. Oh, wow. We were, we were cruising through bioluminescent waters. And so what I saw were these psychedelic, green, glowing porpoises swimming in unison. I'm, it was like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. But, you know, I could describe that to somebody in a bar and they'd think somebody would think I was on acid. <laughs> exactly. They were sparkling and green and yeah, <laughs> glittering. Green, illuminated fish. They looked like ghosts, you yeah, know. Right. And they did. They looked they looked like something supernatural. Yeah. That sounds so fantastically beautiful. You probably just were there present in that moment. But even at the time, you knew they were porpoises and you knew it was bioluminescence. That's true. (laughs) So there's like some language you have or some orientation of what this thing could be. But certainly, certainly, uh, you know, maybe a century and a half ago, if, if, if somebody didn't have language for that or didn't know what a porpoise was or didn't know the bioluminescence were these, you know, tiny cellular organisms. Yeah, maybe it would easily get out of hand (laughs) in the storytelling. (laughs) thanks for listening to mossback this episode was produced by me sarah bernard and the executive producer is mark baumgarten editorial assistance from mason bryan cover art by greg cohen And many thanks to engineer Resty Bacall for building out an amazing COVID-friendly audio studio. If you'd like to check out more videos from the five seasons of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, Go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to KCTS9's on-demand programming and a subscription to the Mossback Den newsletter, where Knut shares even more Pacific Northwest history. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard, and we'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>